Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, this gospel's version of Jesus' spectacular scene in the temple at Passover. Unlike the Synoptic Gospels, John does not suggest any corruption or dishonesty at play in the temple system. So what is bothering Jesus? We have an honest, interfaith conversation about what happens when one person stands up for what they think is right in a way that ensures that many others cannot do what they think is right. We wonder how lonely it might have been for Jesus to walk through the world already knowing the pitfalls of human nature, knowing that he couldn't really entrust himself to and we recognize again and again the abiding patience of the disciples who couldn't possibly understand the import of what Jesus said as he said it, but held on to the memory of it to unlock it later. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am a disaster. <laughs> I'm gotten, here in my place where I record and there's leaf blowers that are blowing leaves like right next to me and I <laughs> and you have no control over it's this just you a have disaster. to just like it's a t- <laughs> I like how your accent changes when you say disaster yeah I don't know what that is even like you're it's like a Bostonian disaster I remember one time was I, I was like talking to you and you some you got a phone call from one of your friends from Long Island or somewhere and oh, you yeah. shifted into this whole other thing. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did that once for my mom. I usually sit somewhere in between. Like, I don't know exactly how I talk, but my mom was at my house in Atlanta and she's from Long Island. And so I, I talked to her like I talked to Long Islanders, but I was calling her a cab back in the day when people called cabs. So I'm already dating myself here. And I knew well and good that I would get better attention from the person if I spoke in a Southern accent. Oh, yeah. So I did. And my mother was like, what is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. 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 You ever, this is totally not irrelevant to anything. When someone says I'm dating myself, sometimes a funny thing that I say, I think it's funny. No one else thinks it's funny. I say- (laughs) I tried dating myself once. That did not go well. <laughs> hmm. That's interesting, Bobby. Yeah. I mean, that's funny. That's funny. You're a funny that's guy. funny. I also, one time in class, <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you these stories, because it's yeah, a disaster. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like I was talking about the, the dating of texts in the Bible, and I was like, Abraham is very difficult to date, mostly because he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying he he occasionally tries to pass off his wife as a sister. That also makes him <laughs> it makes well, dating him difficult. Difficult to yeah. date. All yeah. sorts of reasons. Anywho, Amy, what are we doing today? Well, we have a disaster themed podcast. <laughs> I know. I think maybe that's what it is. Yeah. We are reading John chapter two, 
as you mentioned last week, we skip one verse. <laughs> yeah. So we pick up in verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter, verse 25. And it's this, this story that is kind of famous, I would say, of Jesus going into the temple and, you know, getting very upset and <laughs> yeah. overthrowing tables. And like, there's yeah. a lot, you know, a lot of commotion happening. Yeah. So I'm really uh, interested to read it with you and I don't know, and sort of parse out what, what exactly, what we think are the most pressing things that are, that are bothering our protagonist. Yeah. This story is so interesting because, I mean, we talked about a version of this story last year that yeah. Yeah. all of the gospels tell this story. The three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place this story at the end of Jesus's life, right before, like right after right. the triumphal entry, right before the crucifixion. And it's kind of what gets him in trouble, I think, officially. Yeah. yeah. But in John's gospel, I mean, here we are. We just, we're in chapter two. We just had the wedding at Cana. Jesus performed his first sign there. And, and now, he had just told his mother, this is not the time. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's like, okay, fine. We start, well, let's rip off the band-aid. Yeah, like, <laughs> like if we're in, we're all in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and trying to keep in, one of the things that I struggle with, which may be different than things that you struggle with, I talk sometimes about the gospel blob. And I think that does happen to people who sort of move in and out of these texts, like the gospels as though they're one big thing, but they're not, right? They're yeah. four individual texts. And John's version of this story includes some things that the others do not, and it leaves out some things Mm -hmm. that the others include. And so reading this version of this story and trying to block out the 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 other other stuff is difficult for me and maybe maybe for some others who are New Testament folks as well. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to pick up then in verse 13. Perfect. And I'm reading from the NRSV. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, let's pause for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, that's self-explanatory. Like, what do do we even need to talk about with that text? I read like a little article about this in preparation for our conversation by James McGrath. And oh, yeah. he referred to this as um, Jesus's temple tantrum. <laughs> and I can't stop thinking about That's that. That's nice. Temple now. tantrum. Yeah. Nice job, job James McGrath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But let's begin at the beginning. It's a very good Just, place to start. It's a very, it's a, an exceptionally good place to start. Just in that first verse, I feel like there are, uh, again, some some sort of windows or clues about John's relationship to the Jewish community yeah. or who is reading this text yeah. who you know who the who the audience might have been what do you I don't know what do you what do you pull out of the fact that it says the Passover of the Jews Yeah I mean it's interesting the tension in this gospel because the gospel writer does seem to be kind of distinguishing himself and his community from the Jews and yet 
the description of Jesus is a very kind of traditionally observant Jew, right? He's he's on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's going to do this, I think, three times in this gospel. Jesus observes the Sabbaths, and he he does all the festivals. He's 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 very much Jewish in this gospel, and yet the gospel is sort of distinguishing itself from Judaism. I think that may represent. We talked a couple of times ago about differentiation, and sort of this community seems to be either pulling itself away from its Jewish lineage or thinking of itself as the only rightful conclusion of its Jewish lineage or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, but you, you can see that, I mean, in a pretty subtle way, but, but also a pretty clear one, I think. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, I think, I think that's right on. And something else that stands out to me in the verse that I think, I don't know if I'm over reading it, but it, it says, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and Jerusalem is south of where yeah. they were, right? It's true. So, you know, often I say I go up someplace when it's like to the north. Yeah. In Hebrew, at least in, in modern Hebrew, the way we talk about going to Israel is like going up yeah. because it is, it's like this spiritual ascent yeah. kind of language. And so I wonder if that is intentional in here or if it's just sort of a, a translation of the way the community, you know, like sometimes turns of phrase just get embedded in language yeah. and sort of cease to represent very much. But it, I do, I feel in that phrase a sort of elevation of the sacred status yeah. of Jerusalem and to my mind, the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah. So yeah, again, like just, I don't know, the way that John is sort of inside and outside Jewish, the Jewish world is very interesting. Yeah. That uh, going up to Jerusalem is interesting. Like that's the kind of usual way it's talked about in biblical texts, mm-hmm. right? Because I mean, Jerusalem is on top of, like it's in the mountains. Yeah. And so pretty much anywhere that like just so geographically, topographically, yeah. you literally go up to get to Jerusalem from just mm-hmm. about anywhere, like in the region. Yeah. But I think that it does take on those spiritual components that you're talking about in some places. And I don't quite know how those are related historically, but that sense of not, we're just not, not just going geographically up, but we're spiritually rising closer to the level of God. I think that is certainly in view in these texts. And here, you know, so the gospel writer doesn't seem to be rejecting that idea. So you know, Jerusalem is up. It is kind of the spiritual center. Yeah. And yet we've got these kind of distinctions taking place. Yes. And yet there are problems. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, can you talk to us a little bit about Passover and its significance and, and why would you go to Jerusalem for Passover and such as that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way that Passover was celebrated back in the days when there was a temple, which quite a long time ago. So modern Jews, many modern Jews wouldn't know this either. (laughs) But it is one of three holidays over the course of the year um, that was a pilgrimage holiday. And Mm -hmm. so every Jew who was able to do it was expected to go to Jerusalem with an offering to be offered at the temple. And it was, it was so important, in fact, that there's a there's, if you can't go for some reason, if you can't go because you're sick, there's a Passover Shani, like there's a there's a second chance to go because it was really, it was really important that 
the yeah. Jews make this pilgrimage. But in any case. Wait, what does that mean? There's another chance to go. There's like a makeup Passover? Yeah, there's a makeup Passover. Wow. I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> there's a makeup Passover. In case you like had COVID during the first Passover and That's couldn't make it, you can yeah. go for the second one. But so there would be these, you know, presumably flood. Like you have to imagine like people weren't. Yeah. Driving. They weren't, you know, like they were making these huge journeys across the nation. Not that Israel was such a huge nation, but like they're journeying on foot or with, you know, camels or in care. You know, they're quite a long journey to be able to come to Jerusalem, make this offering and then and celebrate the Chag there in Jerusalem. And in theory, this would be like Jews from all around the diaspora in theory, would be coming to Jerusalem too, right? Not just people in the land, but people actually. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I that's true. I don't know how far, you know, I don't think it was the sort of thing where people who lived far away would come every year. But I, I think every year there would have been people coming from far away. Coming from far away. Mm-hmm. So you've got this kind of, you know, all around the Roman world, you've got Jews headed toward Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, to the mothership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I do want to talk a little bit more about Passover and the themes of Passover and how it could mm-hmm. relate maybe to what's going on here. But I want to first, yeah. <laughs> I want to first talk about what, what ensues, yes. right? Yeah, that seems right. So what can you tell us about what Jesus finds in the temple? People selling cattle, sheep, doves, money changers. What's happening? Yeah. So it's such a curious little story here and and exactly what the problem is is not entirely clear well but can you explain that because i don't know how much our listeners know about the sort of temple complex yeah. but if there were like people selling animals in my synagogue i would <laughs> i don't know like it you, it doesn't it doesn't seem like a very sacred activity yeah, no, I think that's that's right. Like this idea that there were people selling stuff in the temple seems weird to some some of us modern listeners, but it was actually kind of a normal thing. And arguably, I mean, not even just arguably, it was a necessary thing for the operation of the temple. So we were just talking about how people are traveling from all over the world to come to the mm-hmm. temple for Passover. And when they get there, they're supposed to make an offering at the temple. They're not going to bring their animals with them for the sacrifice. And so when they get to Jerusalem, they're going to buy an animal to make sacrifice. Mm -hmm. The animals that you sacrifice at the temple are meant to be unblemished. And so just the dangers of bringing an expensive animal across. Totally. You you bring it on this long trip and it like stubs its toe and now you can't offer it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. these merchants are doing the things that are necessary for the religious observance of Passover. The money changers, like it sounds like a weird thing to us, but you know, what was happening there is people were coming from around the Roman world and they had coins with images of the emperor on them. And you're not supposed to have images of the emperor in the temple precinct, right? This is a violation of the, of the, whatever commandment that is, the second one. (laughs) Yes. One of those. One of those. It depends on what tradition you're in, actually, whether you're Jewish or Protestant or Catholic. But, uh. So the money changers were changing sort of Roman coins for Tiberian coins that didn't Mm -hmm. have images on them. So this is also a religious observance. 
And so like what they're doing there is totally normal. Now, in some of the other gospels, we get this reference to you have turned my temple into a house of robbers, which we Mm -hmm. talked about last year in Luke's version of this text, which needs some interpretation, but we don't need to do it right now. But this text does not have that in there. Like it's not like Jesus does not say, hey, you're robbing people. Jesus just gets rid of them um, and says, don't make my father's house a place of business. Mm-hmm. But it's, it does not seem to be the case in John's gospel that Jesus is upset because there are dishonest business practices taking place. It seems to be just the fact that there's business taking place at all, even though it's necessary for the operation of the temple's I think that is such an important difference. You know, you mentioned that it's hard once you know the way that these stories are told in the other gospels to read just the text that's in front of us. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, in the text in front of us, the text doesn't tell us that they're they're that they're dishonest. That's right. And so then that pushes us further to say like, well then what, you know, in a in a, um Jewish studies classes, there's this phrase Makashela Rashi, like what yeah. what's bothering this interpreter yeah. named Rashi, this very famous interpreter, because he'll start explaining things that you're like, wait, why are you talking about that? Like, what is the issue in the text that's yeah. bothering you? And then my question here is like, what's bothering Jesus? And I think you're right. It doesn't it doesn't give us any indication that they're being dishonest. Yeah. As far as we know, and as far as we know, this was normal, typical practice right. in in the worship community. So, yeah, maybe he just... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah. And so what we're talking around, which I think is important, is, you know, Jesus has a concern here about the buying and selling of things related to proper religious observance, the proper buying and selling of things related to proper religious observance. And so there's not any impropriety here. It is the act of commerce being related to the act of worship seems to be the issue. And I don't know how we're going to solve that, (laughs) just to be honest with you. But what I want to point out is that it places a lot of us squarely in the middle of this text, where if if something wrong is happening, we can say, oh, shame on them for doing something wrong. But there's nothing wrong happening here. And so now we're all, I hope, thinking about our own religious practice and like, what is the relationship of, you know, commerce and religion and worship in our own practice? And we're thinking, oh my goodness, if Jesus is upset about this, which is totally legitimate, you know, then is, are we doing something too? I think we ought to be a little squirmy, all of us. Yeah. Sometimes Christians will read this text as a way of saying those Jews were doing terrible things in the temple. And that is not what is happening here, Mm -hmm. especially in this version of the text. And so then the thing is, well, those, you know, the establishment religion people were doing something that seemed a very establishment religion-y, and Jesus was upset about that. And so so what is that? Yeah. What is that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, what is that? And so, I mean, you know, I keep thinking unless there is in here a critique that is not explicit of the entire system, the entire sacrificial system. Yeah. Meaning that you shouldn't have to have resources in the first place, have material resources in order to be able to worship. Yeah. 
that, that I guess that's where it keeps pulling me back to because otherwise what they're offering actually makes it a lot easier for, yeah. <laughs> it's very convenient to be able to, you know, get all the materials you need sort of right there. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't see that critique explicitly in here. Do you see it explicitly in here? No, I mean, so, so, I mean, what Jesus has done, and I mean, this detail is different in this gospel. He made a whip from ropes. <laughs> so like, yeah, he sure did. Somebody in the Bible worm collaborative was talking about like, just like pausing over that image of like, he took some ropes and he sat down, I guess. And he like weaved a whip out of it. Like there is some drama here. Yeah. Uh, and then he yeah, uses the Yeah, that's actually, whip. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is spectacle. Yes. Jesus is creating yes. spectacle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just for the sake of spectacle, I don't think. It's to make a point. But he's very clearly trying to... There's a theatrical component here, right? He's, right. Whereas before he was, the, in the last sign, he was so sort of behind yeah. the scenes and, you know, did not put himself front and center. Now he really is, he he is absolutely front and center. Yeah. So I think he uses the whip to chase the cattle and the sheep. I don't think he actually whips people. <laughs> it's, not, like, it's not entirely clear in this text. Yeah. I th- It's so, well... I, th- I mean, at least in my translation, when I first read, he drove them out of the temple, I thought it included the people, mm-hmm. but then it says both the sheep and the cattle. Yeah. So maybe it The CEB says including the cattle and the sheep, mm. which is less clear. But I, I, think the, I think the idea is that he's driven the animals out. And then with the people, he's overturned their tables and scattered the coins all around. Yeah. And I mean, what Jesus has done is shut down the temple on the busiest, most holy, or one of the most holy days of the year. He has made it impossible for them to do the stuff. Right. But he doesn't say why, right? I mean, what, I mean, he does. Uh, he, He says, don't make my father's house a place of business. So that's the critique. That's what, that's why Jesus has done this. Don't make it a place of business. He does not say, like, stop sacrificing animals right. to worship God, right? Right. So one can read this as an overturning of the sacrificial system, but that's not what Jesus that says seems like about a, it. That seems like a stretch. I agree. It's the business aspect. And so where you went, I thought was interesting. Like, one should not have to have resources in order to worship God. There's something to that. I think there's something to that, but I also am thinking back to the ways in which, you know, we've talked about some other texts that that you have pointed out that like our 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 sense of worshiping God has to be really concretely tied into our our everyday and the economy of our everyday. Yeah. Like having God just in some spiritual realm of ideas out there, but not tied into our lives. I also want to say financially. You don't talk about it in this way. Like you're you're talking much more about like economic justice. Yeah. But it's it does seem like a big thing to potentially suggest that I don't know, they're just really different worldviews. Like to what extent should your financial life be tied into worship? Or maybe as maybe as my inner Bobby would say, like to this sort of institutionalized mm-hmm. religious system. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly a critique of institutionalized religious, the institutionalized religious system here. 
One of the key intertexts with this text that we're currently reading, as you probably know, is Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, which is the end of the book of Zechariah, begins with a day is coming that belongs to the Lord. That's 14.1. So it's the, the day of the Lord is arriving. And then 14.21, which is the last verse of Zechariah, there will no longer be any merchants in the house of the Lord of heavenly forces on that day. So what Jesus is doing seems to be a fulfillment of Mm -hmm. a prophecy in Zechariah that's looking forward to the day of the Lord, the arrival of the of the kingdom of God, or however you want to, whatever language you want to use for that. So it's not the case that Jesus is doing something over and against the temple worship that was unanticipated in Israelite religion or in Judaism. It's this Israelite prophet was looking for this thing. So the critique of the temple that Jesus is enacting is an internal critique to the Jewish scripture. Yes, yes. Which doesn't solve the problem, <laughs> but, but no, it like, right. like, what is Zechariah's I mean, problem, I think, now is the question. Yes. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's, you know, we pointed out that he doesn't talk about dishonesty per se in the John version, but there are lots of critiques of the temple cult happening in the Jewish community around this time. Yep. There are a lot of people who think it's not being done properly, that there is dishonesty in it, that there's, you know, which, again, happens— Anytime you mix up power and religion together, that's what you get. So yes, there's the theological critique of of what you know what we hear maybe in Zechariah, but there are a lot. Yes, Jesus is not alone in having a problem in how this all is going down. One of the things that I kind of want to try on is this idea that's in the Jewish scripture and the Hebrew Bible, also is taking place here, that in an ideal future in the messianic age. God will be present in a way that does not require the same sacrificial system that is operative in the temple in Jerusalem in like regular time. Zechariah is envisioning a day where God arrives on the day of the Lord, and then we don't need this mercantile system any longer. Mm -hmm. Jesus is sort of envisioning the same thing, perhaps, that God is now present in a way that means we don't have to do this thing where we sell access and we we have all the, you know, the things that you have to do in a non-Messianic time uh, are no longer necessary because we're now in a Messianic time, at least in, in, the, in the mind of John. So maybe there's a proper place for this sort of religious, you know, structure in normal times, but in the mm-hmm. fulfillment of time, no longer mm-hmm. necessary. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is saying you know, hey. Guess what's starting? Yeah. Here I am. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Will you talk to me a little bit about how you understand his, what his disciples remember after this dramatic episode? Zeal for your house will consume me. They remember that, that, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, which is a quote from Psalm 69. Yeah. Verse nine. I don't know how how do how do you think about that here? Yeah, I mean that psalm is an interesting intertext here that the disciples remember. I mean, first of all, that the disciples remember sort of through scripture, they're interpreting Jesus. It seems like in real time, 
through their knowledge of the scriptures, which is which is fascinating to me. They're pretty knowledgeable folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah. You know, I think, as is often the case with John, this connection points in two different directions. One of them is that it's an explanation of Jesus's actions, right? He is so zealous for the temple that he is doing this thing where he's throwing out the money changers and driving out the animals. Like the, the zeal, his, Jesus's own zealousness for proper religious observance has, um, has overtaken him. I'm just curious. I have another thought about what, about the significance, but I'm curious what, where, what connection you, you would make. I think a part of what I'm wondering is, you know, that the psalm before we get to that line is, you know, one of these save me, you know, it starts out, save me, oh God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Like it really is about deep, enduring suffering and being, you know, hated by all the people around, hated and shamed and dishonored and... And then we get to this sentence, it is zeal for your house that has consumed me. And then it sort of goes on to bewail the, you know, the circumstance. And so I don't know if if all the rest of the psalm is sort of being drawn in also. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I do have to imagine. And, you know, again, just maybe stating the obvious from the Jewish perspective, like, people traveled from a really long distance to celebrate their holiday in a way that has been done for a long time. Yeah. And we don't see anything, you know, on the face of it, objectionable or wrong happening here. And as you said, like Jesus just shuts it down. Yeah. And that really stinks for all the Jews yeah. who weren't oh like yeah. this model this model is wrong and we should shut it down like for people yeah. who were actually trying to worship in the Jewish yeah. way this was a really like mean-hearted thing to do yeah and so i don't know if if there's this sense that like you know his as you said sort of his zeal for for things to be the way that he thinks it should be <laughs> yeah has made him the subject of these insults and this hatred because yeah, it, it, I'm sure this did not make him popular. Yeah. That's so helpful, Amy. And so to try to like make an imaginative exercise where, you know, I mean, I don't quite know what the parallel is. Like in my tradition, it would be like if you were worshiping in your church on Easter morning, like the biggest, one of the biggest days of the year and somebody came in off the street and started yelling about, organ music or right and like destroyed your organ and like chased your yeah you know i don't know what throws all the offering all over the floor right but like just lays waste to the whole Mm -hmm. thing and you had just traveled for four days to get to this service and it was the you know a, a peak religious moment for you and because this person doesn't like the way that this worship is being done, they shut it down. Now I yeah. realize in the Christian tradition, this person is Jesus. So it's not right. just this person. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I do, I, I get that. But if you, if you, if you don't follow that belief system, then yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's important. And that, that points sort of points to the other re- way of reading this that I think John maybe has in mind is that the zeal for the house of the Lord will consume me 
can also be read in the other direction that the people's zeal for the temple is ultimately oh. what's going to kill Jesus. And Interesting. So now you've got this conflict where his his zeal on the one hand has disrupted temple worship and then yeah. the people's zeal or the religious leaders zeal in response is what ends up 3 years later in this gospel in Jesus's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. death. So that I think that one line zeal for the temple will consume me functions in both of those ways at the same time. There's John doing it again. It does not in either case express any sympathy <laughs> for the people who have come to worship. Like it's yeah. John, John is not interested in that. And you know, mm-hmm. uh, those of us who are or 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 wish to be need to keep that in keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that that's interesting there is when you read Psalm 69, it was passion for your house has consumed me. When you read John 12, 17, it was passion for your house will consume me. That's right. And so the disciples remember, but they misremember. Or I mean, really what John is doing is he's playing sort of in a sort of midrashic kind of way, actually. Yeah. yeah. He's just changed one little sort of tense of a verb, and he has made it a future prophecy instead of a psalmist saying, this thing that I did has yeah. gotten me in trouble. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you pointed that out. So if you, if you had if you had to pin down what's happening here, can you pin it down? I am not at all sure that this is the right answer. At all at all. But I at least at this moment because there is no mention of dishonesty in this text. I think the critique has to be bigger than that. Like yeah. not just, I don't like the current leaders and I don't trust them. Yes. But like we are going about this whole thing wrong. Maybe yes. not, it always shouldn't have been this way, but it shouldn't be this way anymore. Yeah. Now, in my mind, that's exactly right. And this is not an innovation of Jesus. We've seen it already. I mean, we saw it in mm-hmm. Amos, to be honest with Amos. you. Amos, yep. Mm-hmm. All the way back in the eighth century, that people come to worship and that gets confused with their economics and God is not properly worshiped when that happens. We see it in Zechariah that there's an age coming when there's no longer going to be any uh, consumer component to religious observance. And now Jesus is saying, hey, that time is now because here Mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jesus, I think, has added to the picture is this time we've been looking forward to where God is going to be worshipped the way that God can be worshipped in the messianic time can now take place. So we don't need to function in the old ways anymore. It's not an overturning, though. It's a fulfilling in John's mind. We've been looking mm-hmm. forward to this, and now here we are. And so then, I mean, that raises all kinds of questions about what does that mean for contemporary practice, but that maybe that's a question for later for later on. Yeah. Yeah, I let. I think that's a good question, and let's hold it and move on a little bit, okay? Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. Today, I want to tell you about a group called the Bible Worm Collaborative, which you can join through our Patreon. The Bible Worm Collaborative is a group of Bible Worm listeners who meet together to collaborate on our interpretations of the biblical text. Once a month, we meet on Zoom to discuss the narrative lectionary text for the following month. 
Amy and I often draw on the questions and insights of the collaborative, giving you a chance to shape the direction of the podcast. Starting this month, Bible Room Collaborative members also have access to a new, exclusive Discord group where you can discuss the text with other collaborative members, offering insights, asking questions, and sharing resources. Amy and I check in regularly to offer our thoughts as well. Collaborative members also receive early access to episodes, a terrific Bible Worm sticker, and the satisfaction of supporting a good cause. You can become a member of the Bible Worm Collaborative by joining our Patreon for just $14 a month. See patreon.com slash Podcast for details. And now, back to this week's episode. So I'm picking up in verse 18. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I mean, okay, when I was reading it and and he said this temple is whatever, the whole like temple body thing before John actually explains what it is, I was like, oh, I got it. Like, <laughs> I understand that John's pointing to like these two different things. And then it was explicit. And I was like, oh, I don't get any <laughs> points now because you told me the answer. Yeah. But I totally guessed that. So you, Bobby, need to give me points. No, that's amazing. That's that's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> A plus, you get a star sticker. Star student. Okay. So so when the Jews ask him, what first of all, what sign can you show us for doing this? Yeah. That's not a usual meaning of the word sign or usual, right? Like that's that's a little strange. Yeah. You know, I've read a couple of different commentaries about this, and that word sign, simeon, is the same word that was used to describe changing water into wine. And it's the same word that's used to describe Jesus's other miraculous signs in the gospel of John. So maybe that's what they're asking for. One of the commentaries I was reading said that the word here can also be used as like a warrant, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. A th- which is actually how the CEB translates it. By what authority are you doing these things? Mm-hmm. To me, that makes more sense. Like, who do you think you are is what that question is. I think that would be the question that I would ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting thinking of it as a sign and then thinking of what else has been described as a sign by John it makes me think of, like, are they asking him to prove that? Like, it's almost like are the are these Jews asking him, They do they sort of, like, pick up what he's laying down? Like, okay, mm-hmm. I see that you're claiming— to be the Messiah by doing this, what, how, prove it. Yeah. Like what, you know, so like, I feel like it could be read that way. Like do, do some big miracle so we know that it's really you. Yeah. Or, and he responds to it, it seems like more in the, well, in the other way, what, what authority do you have? How would you read his response then? What, which category does it fit into? His response is just strange. Yeah, what what I think is happening here is that the the Jewish leaders have asked him for his credentials, right? Mm-hmm. Show us your show us your paperwork <laughs> that explains why you're doing this. Jesus has taken it in the other way 
which is mm-hmm. I will sh- I will show you a miracle, which is that I'm going to be resurrected from the dead, mm-hmm. and that is the paperwork mm-hmm. you need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is, in, in the way that John does, Jesus has kind of played both sides of that word to say, my authority is in this future thing that you don't know about yet. And I can't show you right now. Right. But once that has happened, you will know that I actually have You'll the You'll understand to this, do this in retrospect. Right. Like right now. Okay. So that's helpful. Like right now, my answer is not really going <laughs> to yeah. give you anything that you're looking for. Yeah. But, you know, in retrospect, you know, it certainly says his disciples realize, you know, realize what has happened and sort of have a, they have such a good memory, those disciples. Yeah. <laughs> they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had a narrator who was like narrating my memory because <laughs> I've probably told you this story. I I went to uh, I live near Memphis, like I live in Little Rock, which is about two and a half hours from Memphis. And so we had a Chinese exchange professor when I first got out here, and we took a trip to Memphis, and we went to Graceland, you know, where Elvis mm-hmm. lived. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. called my mom, and I was like, "Hey, mom." I'm in Graceland. I remember that time that our family stopped here on our way to California. And my mom was like, I've never been to Graceland. <laughs> and I was like, what? I guess the only thing I can figure is that I actually went there on like a church trip or something. Did you check that with other family members? <laughs> Nobody. I'm that. the only one who remembers. You're the only one who remembers. Okay, it's you. Yeah, you're, I guess it's it, I guess that's true. <laughs> So I just, my memory like connects all sorts of things that didn't actually happen. And But if I had somebody narrating my memory, they, they probably would, would really, just be like, Bobby did not remember going to Graceland. No, they wouldn't. They would underscore all your wins. Yeah. You're so, your memory's so good. You remember things that didn't even happen. Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So John is making these connections for us, uh, for sure. Yeah. Through the disciples. Mm-hmm. The disciples... Memory. Okay, so after the disciples remember that he said this, the text says they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Mm-hmm. Do you read in that sentence the scripture and the word as being the same mm, thing? That's a good question. What do you what do you what do you think? Well, if they're different things, I wish I knew which scripture they were talking about. Yeah. Because I don't I don't know an explicit I don't know scripture that they would be talking about. But if they're the same thing, then the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken become like that really I guess sort of elevates Jesus's words like at that point in their memory to scripture. Yeah. Which that's like, that's pretty quick. I guess it doesn't say when exactly after his death, but it just says, you know, after he was raised from the dead. Yeah. They remembered and sort of like on the, I kind of like that idea that on the, as soon as they remembered this and sort of put it together, it's like the category of scripture and the category of like what we would say is like the oral tradition. Yes. (laughs) sort of map on top of each other and you realize yeah. that they're not, they're not just, they're not parallel things. They're the same in some way. I love that last move that you made in thinking through the Jewish tradition of the written Torah mm-hmm. and the oral Torah. The oral Torah appears to be sort of, you know, later interpretations of the 
of the written Torah, but it's understood in the tradition anyway to be sort of a simultaneous revelation. Yeah, yep, right. And that you can't understand the written without the oral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I love thinking about this disciple's revelation as just taking Jesus and placing him in the position of oral Torah. Yeah. And so he is saying the same thing as the written Torah, but you might not recognize it as the written Torah unless you understood that it's the same, right? You might think that the rabbis are inventing rules, <laughs> you know, in the oral Torah, but in fact, it is the, it is understood to be the same. You might think Jesus mm-hmm. is making up different interpretations. I th- I feel like we talked about this some last year on the on the podcast too that in a, in a sense like Jesus has become the authoritative interpretation through which the Torah is now to be read. Mm-hmm. In that sense in parallel with later Jewish writings like the Mishnah and the Talmud. Yeah. Midrash. It, you're st- we're reading the same text but we're reading them through different refractions. Right, it's almost like we have a different um like I'm picturing those uh uh, like spy kits where there's like some kind of page oh, yeah. that you can't make out <laughs> yeah. what's going on on the page, but it's like a page and you can try to make it out, but like you can have sort of like a clear red thing you hold over it oh, yeah. and then that you uh-huh. see certain things or like a clear gray thing you hold over it yeah. and you see other things and, but that you, you need to have some kind of lens to hold over it in order to come to it, a true understanding. And there's just a, this is, this is a different one. I think that's right. And the other thing I think is really important here is that the disciples don't get this until after the resurrection. Yes. So when they're living through the story in real time, they don't they don't understand what's happening here. Yes. And it's only in retrospect. And like to me, that's crucial about some of this two two levels thing that John is doing is nobody in the story really understands anything mm-hmm. that's happening on the spiritual plane until after the resurrection. Then they can look back and say, oh, that's what that was about. So then what you have in the gospel narrative itself is a whole bunch of literalistic interpretations that are actually incorrect interpretations. This two, this two level thing that John is doing, they don't have access to the other level. So they read everything right. on the mundane level. And John is like, that is, <laughs> that is not what was going on. So here it's the Jewish leaders saying, what are you talking about? Like, it's taken us 40 years to build this temple and you're going to raise right. it up in three days. Like right. very literal but they don't have access to any other kind of way of right they couldn't they couldn't possibly yeah that's that's so interesting and it's so interesting to try to put ourselves in the position of people in the story like which in some ways John is not really doing like yeah. he doesn't talk about what the disciples thought was happening then yeah <laughs> yeah you know it's just sort of a series of like they saw this happen and they remembered something from scripture and then this other thing happened and it doesn't really comment on what they thought was happening until until it was through the lens of memory. Yeah. That's really interesting. So interesting. This is not really uh, probably super important, but this, I love that the 46 years is very specific. <laughs> it is so specific. It's so specific. Herod the Great, of course, was a famous temple builder. So we had the first temple built by Solomon that was destroyed in 586. And then we had the rebuilt temples that was dedicated in 515. And then Herod really undertook the sort of massive renovation of the temple in about 20 BCE, maybe Mm -hmm. 19. So the 46th year of that would place us somewhere around the year like 27, maybe somewhere Mm -hmm. right in there. And so there's, they're still working on it. 
Josephus tells us they didn't actually complete the temple until 66, and then it was destroyed in 70, which is That's so, so sad. sad. So sad. <laughs> <laughs> they had it for four years, and then they revolted. Mm. Anyway, this would place this story in about 27 CE, which is about right in terms of the lifetime of Jesus and when we think he was crucified and all that. Yeah. It is, it is really interesting when we can map these events onto historical data, data about history from other sources. Yeah. You know, so it's not just sort of floating out there in the ether. Yeah. yeah a little bit more rooted. Now, of course, the key line here is the temple Jesus was talking about was his body. In verse 21, John tells us that as an aside, right? So yeah. John is like, he's looked into the camera, like he's broken the fourth totally. wall. And he said, yeah. here's what's going on, y'all, in case you don't get it. Jesus was talking about his body. Mm-hmm. So now we've got Jesus in the temple, driving out the ap- the financial apparatus of the temple, and then, de- and then talking about his own body as a temple. Well, how do we start thinking about that? Oh, yeah, it's so it's weird in some ways that I didn't really think about that question because I was just so happy with myself that I realized that he was talking <laughs> about his body instead of yeah. the temple. Okay, I think this is a little simplistic, but we'll start here. So if we have thought of the temple as the place where God's presence is especially present mm-hmm. on earth, mm-hmm. and that's where Jews go to... Uh, I mean, like literally I was going to say have communion, which of course comes to have a different uh, meaning in the Christian tradition, but to, you know, be just as close as you can get to God's presence. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way that I think this should be happening. There's something about this system that's not working for me or that is Mm -hmm. more, or that is, has reached its time. Yeah. (laughs) If we transfer all that to Jesus's body and picture sort of God's presence walking through the world in Jesus's body, that's as far as I can go. That was really beautiful. Now, I think that's exactly what John is doing. The temple has been, the Holy of Holies has been the place where God is most fully present in the world. Now God is incarnate. The -hmm. word was God and the word became flesh. Now God is in a embodied walking around. And so now Jesus is simp- I think is simply saying, Here, here I am, y'all. Like the temple yeah. is all it's all well and good, but right. God is present right here with you, talking to you. And so you don't need you don't need all of that anymore. Here is here's the renewed temple. And you know, the Hebrew scriptures are looking forward to a renewed temple from like Ezekiel onward. Yeah. But they were not looking forward to a person becoming the temple. Yeah. And so here, although in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you get a little bit of that kind of language, interestingly. but Yeah, they were looking forward to a new temple and they were looking to a new chosen person, anointed yes. one figure from God. But they were not looking for those things to be the same. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, they are the same. And now you've got to, if if you are if you are a believer of that, if you're a follower of that path, then you got to think about well, what's the significance then of God being in the body of a person, not in the 
apparatus of established religion. And I don't quite know, I don't quite know where you go with that exactly, but it's, it's a much more sort of relational idea about what access to God looks like and less institutional. Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking, and we should not go into this because we need to finish our reading, but I keep thinking, I feel like this is such a Jewish way to think about it, but I keep landing on like, yeah, but then he dies. Yeah. So now what do you do? Yeah. Right. So now what do you do? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so fine. Okay. You're saying not the temple, but, but a human body. And then, and then that human body isn't here with us anymore. Yeah. I mean, the way that I would respond to that, although it doesn't come from John. And so I'm, so I have to hesitate a little bit. It comes from Paul and we read it, read a little bit last year of this idea that the Christian community in the presence of the Holy spirit becomes the temple. Like your body is a temple. Mm. And so, so Jesus's body takes on a different form yeah. and that is the yeah. form of the community of believers community. Mm-hmm. among in whom that the spirit is present. Not just, not just any group of people who, who claim to be followers of Jesus. Uh, and so then you have access to God in that sort of spiritual, spiritual temple. But I don't know that that's, I don't know for sure that that's where yeah. John wants us to go. Like John has a kind of a realized eschatology that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of heaven. And so, and, in, in the gospel of John, Jesus will see, sends the Holy Spirit to be present among the people. And so, so maybe that's what would be John's response is this, the spirit is now out in the world, mm. even mm-hmm. after Jesus's death and resurrection. Mm. <laughs> big questions, Bobby. I love dropping the big questions on you. It's great. Yeah. No, it's good. Um, should we do these last couple verses? Yes, please. Okay. So picking up then in 23. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. Well, that's clear enough. (laughs) Okay, would, would that be a great superpower or a terrible superpower to know what was in everyone? Oh, I don't, I, <laughs> is that I not the question you're expecting me to ask? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I want that. I don't think, I don't think I want that. I, I wrote in the margin, terrible superpower. So I agree with you. <laughs> I don't want that superpower. Yeah. I mean, and, and even for Jesus, it leads Jesus to not entrusting himself to people because he knows that's that they're so not trustworthy. Mm-hmm. It's a very sad comment. It's really, it's very, tra- I mean, what a lonely mission. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's true. People are the worst, but <laughs> but sad. Mm-hmm. How does the NRSV translate verse 25? And needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. The CEB, in such an interesting translation, says he didn't need anyone to tell him about human nature, for mm. he knew what human nature was. Interesting. So it's much more sort of abstract instead of like, I don't need yeah. your, I don't need your friend to put in a good word for you because I already know who you really are. Yeah. Like the NRSV's translation kind of leads you down the road of like, he knew, you know, he knew 
who was good and who was bad. Who was naughty and I, I just went down yeah. a whole like Santa Claus yeah. thing. I still got uh-huh. Christmas on my mind. That's not really what I meant, but like, but I mean, you kind of get that idea that there's like two lists and Jesus trusts some people and not others. The way the CEB translates it, I actually really like better. And I, I'd have to do some work to see what I think the Greek is supporting, but yeah. he, he doesn't trust human nature because he knows what human nature is like. To me, that is such a nice sort of democratization of the distrust (laughs) of Jesus to say, like, I've been around enough people to know that even y'all who are trying your best to be the best people you can be are not entirely trustworthy. Like, you you do not always do what you wish you did. Yeah. I say I like that reading. It's not that I like that reading, but I I think that reading makes sense. Yeah, you think it reflects what, it reflects the, the real core of the message here. Yeah. And it puts me in that way that I like to be, it puts me in the, instead of being like, I'm on the nice list and look at who's on the naughty list. It puts me in that, like, I'm a human, like all humans. And so I'm not entirely trustworthy. Like that is, that is true. Yeah. And it's such a, you know, having that sentence right after this verse, many believed in him, many believed in his name because they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus couldn't believe in any of them basically. Yeah. Yeah, and in the Greek, that's the same verb, pisteo, mm-hmm. uh, which is like the word we translate belief or to have faith or to trust. You know, so they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Yeah, which is heartbreaking and I guess also an important reminder that though he is walking through the world in a human body, you know, though he is is a human, also not. Like, yeah. I don't know. I'm getting into Christian theology that I shouldn't get into. But like, but there, there's something, there's a clear differentiation here. I think that's probably right. Yes. So Jesus is not untrustworthy in the way that human nature is untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. Do you think it matters that in the first verse it says they believed in his name? Oh, that's interesting because I was going to say they believed because they saw signs. That was, that okay, was great. So we'll look at both of those things. Yes. Yeah. Do, what do you do with the name thing? I think that's interesting. I guess it just, it makes the whole thing more abstract to me. Like it, you believe in the, almost like the idea yeah. of him, you know, you believe in what he represents, you believe in, it just gets a little loftier. Yeah. I like that a lot. And it kind of goes like on this miraculous signs thing like we've we've seen a we've seen a few times even already like jesus asked nathaniel back in the last chapter about like do do you believe in me because you because i saw you under the fig tree (laughs) he's gonna say to thomas at the end of the gospel you have seen me and believe but blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe and so there's a sense here in which jesus is not very trusting of people who need to see signs in order to believe, Mm -hmm. which I think is related to this sort of lofty or thin idea that what the idea of, and what Jesus really wants, I think, is that you understand the way that he's trying to present, which we have not really seen yet in this gospel, but we get it sort of full force in John 13 and 14. And that you don't need the flash and you don't need the lofty name but you get the substance and then maybe he, then maybe he trusts you. Although that's not here. Yeah. Is there 
Is there anything else we want to say about those two verses before we zoom out a little? I mean, the only other thing that I would say there is, you know, it's a little depressing to say that Jesus didn't trust people because Jesus knows what people are like. But I mean, like we crucified him, (laughs) like not Mm -hmm. too long after that. Like Jesus was right not to trust us. Yes, that is true. Because people do terrible things. And that is exactly what happens to Jesus. The people who he came to save did not mm-hmm. believe, mm-hmm. and which in, which in my reading anyway includes all of us. And yet, like the good news on the other side of that is, and yet Jesus thought it was worthwhile to go through all of this mm-hmm. in order to save people who he, who he knew were not going to be able to live up to his expectations. That's the, like by the end of the gospel, you get on a, on a more positive view of this, I, I suppose. And I know, I think that's a really good point. I mean, it's, it's sad for me on a human level to think about going through your life, understanding yeah. that <laughs> sort of dark darkness or limitations of humans. And also sometimes it is, that really is the best thing to say, like, I, I see who you are in the world. I don't hate you, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I understand. Mm-hmm. And we're going to, we're going to work with reality here. You know, we're going to be real about this and being yeah. real about this. I know what, I know you're not going to be able to do certain things because of your nature. And that's, yeah, it's okay because it's, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, friend, <laughs> we have come to that time where you help us lift up a theme or two from a complex text. I feel like so far, every time we've gotten to this point with John, I just, I laugh. Because <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Well, we yeah, right. Say, we are at that time. We got to say Maybe a during, thing. We can put that on hiatus during the rest of John. Be like, we don't have any concluding. <laughs> no. John have is nice hard week. to understand, y'all. So we'll just tell you some stuff and then good luck, everybody. Okay. And bonus points if you can tie it into the initial theme we started with of disaster. No, I'm just kidding. Don't tie it. I mean, you can if you want to, but what what are you thinking, Bobby? Here's where my head is going about this text is that from the beginning, from Amos onward, anyway, in the Hebrew scriptures and Zechariah, it was understood that when you have a religious apparatus that is trying to be a way of relating to God, that there is going to be a complicated relationship between religion and economics. that's just going to take place just by the, by the way of things. And so we have Zechariah sort of anticipating a day when that's no longer the case. Here we have Jesus now saying, this is the day when that is no longer the case. And here I am as a person in relationship with you, incarnated among you. You don't need to go through this religious apparatus to get here anymore. And, you know, for me as a religiously institutional person, this is a little bit threatening, right? Because like, this is, this is my livelihood, right? To be around the, the institution of religion. Mm-hmm. And there is a commerce side to it for sure. And here I think Jesus is saying, that's not really the vision. The vision is for access to God to be relational and personal, and enfleshed, embodied, hands-on. As you were saying earlier, open access. You, you should not have to have resources in order to participate and be in God's presence. And that raises a whole sort of 
critique, but also possibility for me about, well, so what does it mean to be a follower of this mm-hmm. one who had that vision of what access to God should look like? And it means we should be relational and embodied and among the people and that our worship should be free access and that we, sh- we shouldn't have expectations about people's economic contributions. Sometimes those things are necessary, right? Just as the, in the way that they were necessary in the pre-Messianic age, uh, in the understanding of Zechariah and others, they are necessary now in the in-between times as Christians understand that like you've got to pay your pastors and you've, right, <laughs> you got to pay your podcasters, some of us. Uh, you've got to do some things like that. But this is not the, we just need to understand that this is not the way that it ultimately is supposed to be, that access right. to God is supposed to be relational and, and free access. And Jesus has done that in this gospel for us, even though Jesus knows that we probably are not <laughs> to be trusted uh, with with that gift, and yet and yet here it is. And so, mm-hmm. so we who want to follow in that way, maybe we can do something similar. When you read this text and you're thinking about how to make sense of it in light of contemporary life, what where do you go? Well, I just want to say first that I I love what you were just saying, and it's it's making me think of conversations that are really alive in the Jewish community now about what is the role of synagogues and yeah. what role, ha- you know, there has been a role of synagogues in American culture that's been, you know, pretty particular to the generation, you know, to to any given generation and trying to figure out what what our role is now. And it is really difficult to, you know, living in the world as we live in it, balance that the realities of, yeah, we, we do have to pay our staff and we have yeah. to pay our mortgage and, you know, all of that. And also what, how can, how can we get more to that sort of relational, individual, personal mm-hmm. access? Yeah. So I just basically am just underscoring everything you said, but in, yes, in the Jewish community too. This yeah. is really a live question. I think that's so interesting. And, you know, I so, to think about that struggle and the the mundane realities of the day to day, which are necessary but are mm-hmm. but are not the but are not big, the point, but are yeah. not the point. And but it's yet easy they're necessary. To be distracted by them, yeah, yeah. And I used the language of already and not yet a little bit mm-hmm. ago, and this is just sort of an apocalyptic. It's not it's not necessarily a Christian only way of framing the world, but an apocalyptic sort of the world has not yet come into the fullness of its being. And the nature of that is, if if you believe we live in that kind of a world, then there are there are some things we must do in order to to survive in the world as it is, even as we try to point to a world as we imagine believe it, it will be. Yeah, I mean, I and I think one other thought that I'll just sort of put out there that I think I've talked about in other gospels too. So maybe this is just a sort of gospely thought, but it certainly came out in this reading too. Was I'm just so struck by this this idea of things that you cannot understand as they're happening. Yeah. You mm-hmm. just have to but you shouldn't ignore them either. Yeah. Like how long did these disciples have to hold on to these memories? I mean not yeah. that long. But uh, like they just had to let it happen and be like, "Hmm." Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, and that's, I am pretty impatient about those things. Mm-hmm. I feel like I either want to understand it or I want to say that was meaningless and let it go. And that's a really a lot of hubris for, 
shepherd me, you know? And so much of our, so much of our lives is in a much more liminal space. And so to, to have examples in scripture of like, it seems to happen instantaneously here because it says, and then when he, you know, like the next paragraph is like, once he died, then they remembered. But, but there was, there was time in there. There was substantial time that they sat in this unknowing. um, And so that's a, a comfort to, a a comfort and an encouragement to me to uh, be willing to sit with things I don't know, but just hold them, just hold them with an open hand and see, see what happens. I love that, Amy. And the sort of flip side of that is, you know, what the disciples have done is they have retrospectively reinterpreted their experience based Mm -hmm. on new, new knowledge, new, new experiences, and also based on scripture. So they've like your current understanding of your life is not the final understanding of your life. It's not the end of it. That's right. And that's, that's right. The way it, you know, that's as it should be. As it should be. Yeah, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And so to reflect on as you get new information and also as you, you know, one of the things I love here is they, they reinterpret their life through the texture of scripture, which I feel like is such Mm -hmm. a beautiful kind of Jewish and Christian way of, Mm -hmm. you know, reading through the fabric of the text. And, and then they come to a new understanding as you're saying, well down the road. Yeah. Mm. A lot to think about in there. That's not where I thought we were going to end up with the overturning of the tables in the temple. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot lot of ways that could have gone. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of ways that could have gone. It's good. Um, so next week we will continue in the very next verse, John chapter three, verse one through 21. Described as Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Yes. How can one be born again? It was like Nicoderm. (laughs) That's not what we're reading about. No, that is not what we're reading about. All right, Amy. Well, I look forward to it. Me too. I'll see you next time. Okay. Right. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporter, Peter Ahn. Join us again next week for John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Until then, keep on digging.